0: Chapter 7 of Planet of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. Chapter 7 With the cool air and firmly packed sand underfoot, walking should have been easy. Leah spoiled that. The concussion seemed to have temporarily cut off the reasoning part of her brain, leaving a direct connection to her vocal cords. As she stumbled along, only half conscious, she mumbled all of her darkest fears that were better left unvoiced. Occasionally there was relevancy in her complaints. They would lose their way, never find the city, die of thirst, freezing, heat, or hunger. Interspersed and entwined with these were fears from her past that still floated, submerged in the timeless ocean of her subconscious. Some Brian could understand, though he tried not to listen. Fears of losing credits, not getting the highest grade, falling behind, a woman alone in a world of men, leaving school, being lost, trampled among the nameless hordes that struggled for survival in the crowded city-states of earth. There were other things she was afraid of that made no sense to a man of Anvar. Who were the Alkians that seemed to trouble her? Or what was Kanseri? Dadle and Hadle? Who was Manstan, whose name kept coming up over and over each time accompanied by a little moan? Brian stopped and picked her up in both arms. With a sigh, she settled against the hard width of his chest and was instantly asleep. Even with the additional weight he made better time now, and he stretched to his fastest, kilometer-consuming stride to make good use of these best hours. Somewhere on a stretch of gravel and shelving rock he had lost track of the sand-car. He wasted no time looking for it. By carefully watching the glistening stars rise and set, he made a good estimate of the geographic north. This didn't seem to have a pole-star, However, a box-like constellation turned slowly around the invisible point of the pole. Keeping this positioned in line with his right shoulder guided him on the westerly course he needed. When his arms began to grow tired, he lowered Leah gently to the ground. She didn't wake. Stretching for an instant, before taking up his burden again, Breen was struck by the terrible loneliness of the desert. His breath made a vanishing mist against the stars. All else was darkness and silence. How distant he was from his home, his people, his planet! Even the constellations of the night sky were different. He was used to solitude, but this was a loneliness that touched some deep-buried instinct. A shiver that wasn't from the desert cold touched lightly along his spine, prickling at the hairs on his neck. It was time to go on. He shrugged the disquieting sensations off and carefully tied Leah into the jacket he had been wearing. Slung like a pack on his back, it made the walking easier. The gravel gave way to sliding dunes of sand that seemed to continue to infinity. It was a painful, slipping climb to the top of each one, then an equally difficult descent to the black-pooled hollow at the foot of the next. With the first lightning of the sky in the east, he stopped, breath rasping in his chest, to mark his direction before the stars faded. One line scratched in the sand pointed due north, a second pointed out the course they should follow. When they were lined to his satisfaction, he washed his mouth out with a single swallow of water and sat on the sand next to the still form of the girl. Gold fingers of fire searched across the sky, wiping out the stars. It was magnificent. Brian forgot his fatigue in appreciation. There should be some way of preserving it. A quatrain would be best. Short enough to be remembered, yet requiring attention and skill to compact everything into it. He had scored high with his quatrains in the twenties. This would be a special one. Tained, his poetry mentor, would have to get a copy. "'What are you mumbling about?' Leah asked, looking up at the craggy blackness of his profile against the reddening sky. Poem, he said. Shh! Just a minute. It was too much for Leah, coming after the tension and dangers of the night. She began to laugh, laughing even harder, when he scowled at her. Only when she heard the tinge of growing hysteria did she make an attempt to break off the laughter. The sun cleared the horizon, washing a sudden warmth over them. Leah gasped. "'Your throat's been cut. You're bleeding to death.' "'Not really,' he said, touching his fingertips lightly against the blood-clotted wound that circled his neck. Just superficial. Depression sat on him as he suddenly remembered the battle and death of the previous night. Leah didn't notice his face. She was busy digging in the pack he had thrown down. He had to use his fingers to massage and force away the grimace of pain that twisted his mouth. Memory was more painful than the wound. How easily he had killed. Three men. How close to the surface of the civilized man the animal dwelled. In countless matches he had used those holds, always drawing back from the exertion of the full killing power. They were part of a game, part of the twenties. Yet when his friend had been killed, he had become a killer himself. He believed in nonviolence and the sanctity of life, until the first test, when he had killed without hesitation. More ironic was the fact he really felt no guilt, even now. Shock at the change, yes, but no more than that. Lift your chin, Leah said, brandishing the antiseptic applicator she had found in the medicine kit. He lifted his chin obligingly and the liquid drew a cool, burning line across his neck. Antibiopills would do a lot more good, since the wound was completely clotted by now, but he didn't speak his thoughts aloud. For the moment, Leah had forgotten herself in taking care of him. He put some of the antiseptic on her scalp bruise and she squeaked, pulling back. They both swallowed the pills. "'That sun is hot already.' Leah said, peeling off her heavy clothing, let's find a nice cool cave or an air-cooled saloon to crawl into for the day. I don't think there are any here. Just sand. We have to walk." "'I know we have to walk,' she interrupted. "'There's no need for a lecture about it. You're as seriously cubical as the Bank of Terra! Relax. Count ten and start again.' Leah was making empty talk while she listened to the memory of hysteria tittering at the fringes of her brain. No time for that. We have to keep going. Brian climbed slowly to his feet after stowing everything in the pack. When he sighted along his marker at the western horizon, he saw nothing to mark their course, only the marching dunes. He helped Leah to her feet and began walking slowly towards them. Just hold on a second, Leah called after him. Where do you think you're going?" "'In that direction,' he said, pointing. "'I hoped there would be some landmarks, but there aren't. We'll have to keep on by dead reckoning. The sun will keep us pretty well on course. If we aren't there by night, the stars will be a better guide.' "'All this on an empty stomach? How about breakfast? I'm hungry—and thirsty.' "'No food.' He shook the canteen that gurgled emptily. It had been only partly filled when he found it. The water's low, and we'll need it later." I need it now, she said shortly. My mouth tastes like an unemptied ashtray, and I'm dry as paper. Just a single swallow, he said, after the briefest hesitation. This is all we have. Leah sipped at it with her eyes closed in appreciation. Then he sealed the top and returned it to the pack without taking any himself. They were sweating as they started up the first dune. The desert was barren of life. They were the only things moving under that merciless sun. Their shadows pointed the way ahead of them, and as the shadows shortened the heat rose. It had an intensity Leah had never experienced before, a physical weight that pushed at her with a searing hand. Her clothing was sodden with perspiration, and it trickled burning into her eyes. The light and heat made it hard to see, and she leaned on the immovable strength of Brian's arm. He walked on steadily, apparently ignoring the heat and discomfort. "'I wonder if those things are edible, or store water.' Brian's voice was a harsh rasp. Leah blinked and squinted at the leathery shape on the summit of the dune. Plant or animal, it was hard to tell. It was the size of a man's head wrinkled and gray as dried-out leather, knobbed with thick spikes. Brian pushed it up with his toe and they had a brief glimpse of a white roundness, like a shiny taproot, going down into the dune. Then the thing contracted, pulling itself lower into the sand. At the same instant something thin and sharp lashed out through a fold in the skin, striking at Brian's boot and withdrawing there was a scratch on the hard plastic, beaded with drops of green liquid. "'Probably poison,' he said, digging his toe into the sand. "'This thing is too mean to fool with, without a good reason. Let's keep going.' It was before noon when Leah fell down. She really wanted to go on, but her body wouldn't obey. The thin soles of her shoes were no protection against the burning sand and her feet were lumps of raw pain. Heat hammered down, poured up from the sand and swirled her in an oven of pain. The air she gasped in was molten metal that dried and cracked her mouth. Each pulse of her heart throbbed blood to the wound in her scalp, until it seemed her skull would burst with the agony. She had stripped down to the short tunic, in spite of Brian's insistence that she keep her body protected from the sun, and that clung to her, soaked with sweat. She tore at it, in a desperate effort to breathe. There was no escape from the unending heat. Though the baked sand burned torture into her knees and hands, she couldn't rise. It took all her strength not to fall further. Her eyes closed and everything swirled in immense circles. Brian, blinking through slitted eyes, saw her go down. He lifted her and carried her again, as he had the night before. The hot touch of her body shocked his bare arms. Her skin was flushed pink. The tunic was torn open, and one pointed breast rose and fell unevenly with the irregularity of her breathing. Wiping the palm free of sweat and sand, he touched her skin and felt the ominous hot dryness. Heat shock, all the symptoms. Dry flushed skin, the ragged breathing, her temperature rising quickly as her body stopped fighting the heat and succumbed. There was nothing he could do here to protect her from the heat. He measured a tiny portion of the remaining water into her mouth and she swallowed convulsively. Her thin clothing was little protection from the sun. He could only take her in his arms and keep on towards the horizon. An outcropping of rock threw a tiny patch of shade and he walked towards it. The ground here, shielded from the direct rays of the sun, felt almost cool by contrast. Leah opened her eyes when he put her down, peering up at him through a haze of pain. She wanted to apologize to him for her weakness, but no words came from the dried membrane of her throat. His body above her seemed to swim back and forth in the heat waves, swaying like a tree in a high wind. Shock drove her eyes open, cleared her mind for an instant he really was swaying. Suddenly she realized how much she had come to depend on the unending solidity of his strength, and now it was failing. All over his body the corded muscles contracted in ridges, striving to keep him erect. She saw his mouth pulled open by the taut cords of his neck, and the gaping, silent scream was more terrible than any sound. Then she herself screamed as his eyes rolled back, leaving only the empty white of the eyeball staring terribly at her. He went over, back, down, like a felled tree, thudding heavily on the sand. Unconscious or dead, she couldn't tell. She pulled limply at his leg, but couldn't drag his immense weight into the shade. Brian lay on his back in the sun, sweating. Leah saw this, and knew that he was still alive. Yet what was happening? She groped for memory in the red haze of her mind, but could remember nothing from her medical studies that would explain this. On every square inch of his body the sweat glands seethed with sudden activity. From every pore oozed great globules of oily liquid, far thicker than normal perspiration. Brian's arms rippled with motion, and Leah gaped, horrified, as the hairs there writhed and stirred as though endowed with separate life. His chest rose and fell rapidly, deep, gasping breaths racking his body. Leah could only stare through the dim redness of unreality and wonder if she was going mad before she died. A coughing fit broke the rhythm of his rasping breath, and when it was over his breathing was easier. The perspiration still covered his body, the individual beads touching and forming tiny streams that trickled down his body and vanished in the sand. He stirred and rolled onto his side, facing her. His eyes were open and normal now as he smiled. Didn't mean to frighten you. It caught me suddenly coming at the wrong season and everything. It was a bit of a jar to my system. I'll get you some water now. There's still a bit left. What happened? When you look like that, when you fell? Take two swallows, no more," he said, holding the open canteen to her mouth. Just summer change, that's all. It happens to us every year on Anvar. Only, not that violently, of course. In the winter, our bodies store a layer of fat under the skin for insulation, and sweating almost ceases completely. There are a lot of internal changes, too. When the weather warms up, the process is reversed. The fat is metabolized and the sweat glands enlarge and begin working overtime, as the body prepares for two months of hard work, heat and little sleep. I guess the heat here triggered off the summer change early." "'You mean, you've adapted to this terrible planet?' "'Just about. Though it does feel a little warm. I'll need a lot more water soon, so we can't remain here. Do you think you can stand the sun if I carry you?' No, but I won't feel any better staying here. She was light-headed, scarcely aware of what she said. Keep going, I guess. Keep going." As soon as she was out of the shadow of the rock, the sunlight burst over her again in a wave of hot pain. She fell unconscious at once. Brian picked her up and staggered forward. After a few yards, he began to feel the pull of the sand. He knew he was reaching the end of his strength. He went more slowly, and each dune seemed a bit higher than the one before. Giant sand-scoured rocks pushed through the dunes here, and he had to stumble around them. At the base of the largest of these monoliths was a straggling clump of knotted vegetation. He passed it by, then stopped as something tried to penetrate his heat-crazed mind. What was it? A difference—something about these plants that he hadn't noticed in any of the others he had passed during the day. It was almost like defeat to turn and push his clumsy feet backwards in his own footprints, to stand blinking helplessly at the plants. Yet they were important. Some of them had been cut off close to the sand, not broken by any natural cause, but cut sharply and squared by a knife or blade of some sort. The cut plants were long dried and dead, but a tiny hope flared up in him. This was the first sign that other people were actually alive on this heat-blasted planet. And whatever the plants had been cut for, they might be of aid to him—food, perhaps drink. His hands trembled at the thought as he dropped Leah heavily into the shade of the rock. She didn't stir. His knife was sharp, but most of the strength was gone from his hands. Breath rasping in his dried throat, he sawed at the tough stem, finally cutting it through. Raising up the shrub, he saw a thick liquid dripping from the severed end. He braced his hand against his leg so it wouldn't shake and spill, until his cupped palm was full of sap. It was wet, even a little cool as it evaporated. Surely it was mostly life-giving water. He had a moment's misgiving as he raised it to his lips, and, instead of drinking it, merely touched it with the tip of his tongue. At first, nothing then a searing pain. It stabbed deep into his throat and choked him. His stomach heaved and he vomited bitter bile. On his knees, fighting the waves of pain, he lost body fluid he vitally needed. Despair was worse than the pain. The plant juice must have some use. There must be a way of purifying it or neutralizing it. But Brien, a stranger on this planet, would be dead long before he found out how to do this. Weakened by the cramps that still tore at him, he tried not to realize how close to the end he was. Getting the girl on his back seemed an impossible task, and for an instant he was tempted to leave her there. Yet even as he considered this he shouldered her leaden weight and once more went on. Each footstep and effort he followed his own track up the dune. Painfully he forced his way to the top, and looked at the disson standing a few feet away. They were both too surprised by the sudden encounter to react at once. For a breath of time they stared at each other unmoving. When they reacted, it was the same defense of fear. Brien dropped the girl, bringing the gun up from the holster in the return of the same motion. The a belt too from his waistband and raised it to his mouth. Brian didn't fire. A dead man had taught him how to train his empathetic sense, and to trust it. In spite of the fear that wanted him to jerk the trigger, a different sense read the unvoiced emotions of the native Disson. There was fear there and hatred. Welling up around these was a strong desire not to commit violence, this time to communicate instead. Brian felt and recognized all this in a fraction of a second. He had to act instantly to avoid a tragic happening. A jerk of his wrist threw the gun to one side. As soon as it was gone, he regretted its loss. He was gambling their lives on an ability he still was not sure of. The disson had the tube to his mouth when the gun hit the ground. He held the pose, unmoving, thinking. Then he accepted Brian's action and thrust the tube back into his waistband. "'Do you have any water?' Brian asked, the guttural disson words hurting his throat. "'I have water.' the man said. He still didn't move. Who are you? What are you doing here?" We're from off-planet. We had... an accident. We went to go to the city. The water. The Disson looked at the unconscious girl and made his decision. Over one shoulder, he wore one of the green objects that Brian remembered from the Salido. He pulled it off, and the thing writhed slowly in his hands. It was alive a green length a meter long, like a noduled section of a thick vine. One end flared out into a petal-like formation. The distant took a hook-shaped object from his waist and thrust it into the petaled orifice. When he turned the hook in a quick motion, the length of green writhed and curled around his arm. He pulled something small and dark out and threw it to the ground, extending the twisting green shape towards Brian. "'Put your mouth to the end and drink.' he said. Leah needed the water more, but he drank first, suspicious of the living water source. A hollow below the writhing petals was filling with straw-colored water from the fibrous, reedy interior. He raised it to his mouth and drank. The water was hot and tasted swampy. Sudden sharp pains around his mouth made him jerk the thing away. Tiny glistening white barbs projected from the petals, pink-tipped now, with his blood. Brian swung towards the disan angrily and stopped when he looked at the other man's face. His mouth was surrounded by many small white scars. The Vedi does not like to give up its water, but it always does. The man said. Brian drank again, then put the Vedi to Leah's mouth. She moaned without regaining consciousness. Her lips seeking reflexively for the life-saving liquid. When she was satisfied, Brian gently drew the barbs from her flesh and drank again. The Dison hunkered down on his heels and watched them expressionlessly. Brian handed back the Vedi, then held some of the clothes so that Leah was in their shade. He settled to the same position as the native and looked closely at him. Squatting immobile on his heels, the Disson appeared perfectly comfortable under the flaming sun. There was no trace of perspiration on his naked, brown skin. Long hair fell to his shoulders, and startlingly blue eyes stared back at Brian from the deepest sockets. The heavy kilt around his loins was the only garment he wore. Once more the Vedi rested over his shoulder, still stirring unhappily. Around his waist was the same collection of leather, stone, and brass objects that had been in the Salido. Two of them now had meaning to Brian: The tube and mouthpiece, a blowgun of some kind, and the specially shaped hook for opening the Vedi. He wondered if the other strangely formed things had equally practical functions. If you accepted them as artifacts with a purpose, not barbaric decorations, you had to accept their owner as something more than the crude savage he resembled. My name is Brian. And you? You may not have my name. Why are you here? To kill my people? Brien forced away the memory of last night. Killing was just what he had done. Some expectancy in the man's manner, some sensed feeling of hope prompted Brian to speak the truth. "'I'm here to stop your people from being killed. I believe in the end of the war. Prove it. Take me to the Cultural Relationships Foundation in the city and I'll prove it. I can do nothing here in the desert, except die.' For the first time there was emotion in the Disson's face. He frowned and muttered something to himself. There was a fine beating of sweat above his eyebrows now as he fought an internal battle. Coming to a decision, he rose and Brian stood, too. "'Come with me. I'll take you to Hovistad, But first you will tell me. Are you from Nyord?' "'No.' The nameless Disson merely grunted and turned away. Brian shouldered Leah's unconscious body and followed him. They walked for two hours, the distance setting a cruel pace, before they reached a wasteland of jumbled rock. The native pointed to the highest tower of sand-eroded stone. "'Wait near this,' he said. "'Someone will come for you.' He watched while Brian placed the girl's still body in the shade and passed over the Vedi for the last time. Just before leaving, he turned back, hesitating. My name is... Ove," he said. Then he was gone. Brian did what he could to make Leah comfortable, but it was very little. If she didn't get medical attention soon, she would be dead. Dehydration and shock were uniting to destroy her. Just before sunset he heard clanking and the throbbing whine of a sand-car's engine coming from the west. End of Chapter 7